I'm very excited to share this recording with you guys, which happened at our conference, sasopen.com, with over 100 speakers, all founders of B2B SaaS companies. We have a very high bar for what speakers share on stage, so you're going to enjoy this episode where we dive deep into revenue graphs, real tactics, and real growth metrics. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to gitlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at gitlatka.com. Morning. I'm Rory. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of Trust Keith. We help start up and scale up businesses become and stay compliant with data regulation. And we do that by combining or by giving them access to a dedicated expert backed up by software. We now support over so 50 scale ups. Um, we're bootstrapped. And today I'm going to talk you through how we're solving for gross margin. We often hear about this 80% number. Here's how we're thinking about it. Here's how we're working towards that. And hopefully give you a bit of a semblance of how you can go and achieve something similar in your businesses. So there's three parts I'm going to talk through. One, the actual mapping process that we go through. And some tips on, some mirror tips on that. Two, how we're solving for gross margin, but also just putting some context about why why 80% and how we're thinking about that and what the market looks like for that. And then finally, how we're thinking about it in the future. So as we're scaling to this next revenue milestone from our perspective. So to give you a bit of context where we're at, we're just over three years old. We are, as of this quarter, we're north of a million dollars of annual recurring revenue. Um, and it's been a real slog to get there, as you can kind of see here. Um, to give you context, our average customer value is around sort of $23,000 per year, um, and that's a bit of a flavor. Next, just to kind of put some more context behind that is what our team looks like. This is the structure we have really effectively as of March. We're a team of 12. It's all bootstraps, so it's been very leanly done. The, the lighter color here is, the lighter color ones are like freelancers and consultants that we kind of lean on as well. We've very intentionally built the business around a book called Traction, which is a book by Gino Wickman. It's really like an operational playbook that you can run in terms of customer values, accountability framework, the, the metrics and the scorecard, and really the rhythm of the business. And one core element of that approach is the functional approach. So we have three core functions, which you can see here. Ops, which is people, ops, and finance. Uh, customer experience, which is basically everything that we do with our customers. And then finally, sales and marketing. So that's really just a semblance of how we're thinking about the business. So when it comes to mapping out the customer experience, one of the first things to do is actually just mapping out who's, who's involved, who's actually touching the customer during the experience. So these are live examples for ourselves. That's the account exec on the sales side, the privacy associate, the direction officer, customer success manager, and the head of service delivery. If you were taking this to the next level, you might include finance or any other role in the business that is touching the customer um, once you start talking with them. Once we've got those roles, we start mapping out all that, the, the, the minute, miniature sort of detail. So this is really looking at what, for every output you're giving them, what are the inputs for it? 
So the output might be, right, a customer kickoff meeting, that's the moment of value in this example. What are all the steps that are going into it? And ultimately, the more detailed you are, the better visibility you're going to get around where you can find efficiencies, but also it's a real good stepping stone for building out your standard operating procedures and that kind of operating Bible that you're going to need as you scale. So ultimately, you're going to do that against every different stage of the customer lifecycle, from sales to the kind of handover, the onboarding on the adoption. Um, and you're ultimately then going to build out what I'm about to show you here. And this is just a, an illustrative example. Um, by building out these swim lanes, and again, a tool like Mirror is perfect for this because it's very interactive and you can just keep scrolling and scrolling. Um, you then pull in a live example. And we can, what the, the, the benefits of doing this is we can now really be seeing where's time being sent, spent, um, who's doing the heavy lifting, um, where are people doubling up, um, and essentially it's an opportunity to really work out where the bottlenecks are. Um, but it's also a really good means to, I guess, review your accountability structure in terms of, of these roles, who's accountable, responsible, consultant, and form for each of these different kind of customer milestones. So the next part, which is really part of that, I kind of teased it already, is just mapping out the customer value moments. Because these are really where it's, from a customer perspective, is what it's all for. So it's trying to make these value moments, at least from the customer perspective, as smooth um, and as quick as possible. Some other examples for the customer value moments might be, if you look at your product adoption metrics, you're going to understand, well, a successful customer has done this by X date. Let's really solve the ins and outs beneath that to ensure that they're getting that efficiently and quickly as well. So that's a quick look at the, the mapping out process, identifying the stakeholders, mapping out the inputs and outputs, and eventually then putting that together in that one visual. There's an artifact that goes with this presentation, which is basically the whole workshop um, here. So if you want to go around this with your own teams, particularly I think that the, the big moment is that kind of handover from sales to Customer success, um, that's where we found a lot of bottlenecks that we've been solving that has made an impact on our gross margin as well. So, next up, why 80%? Why that number? Um, there's ultimately, I mean, gross margin is ultimately a quantifiable metric of efficiency. And in something like SaaS software, it's all about the efficiency and like scalability. Other metrics that I would put in the, in the same basket to this would be net revenue retention, your efficiency of holding on and retaining and growing that revenue, as well as on the sales and marketing side of things when it comes to your customer acquisition cost to lifetime value, that efficiency as well. Um, and I often think with the business we're building, we're in the scheme of things, I'm not expecting us to have some like unicorn growth and that to be the exciting metric of the business. I see something like the efficiencies, which we have so much more control over, as ultimately a really good piece of value that we can build in the business by just building a really good, efficient machine. So this is a list. This is Bessemer Ventures. This is the uh, NASDAQ Emerging Cloud Index. It's the top 15 companies in it. You'll probably recognize all of these logos. Um, but the commonality we're seeing here is the gross margin. So that, it only actually goes up to 90%, but in any case, the median of 85.8% is pretty cool. Um, and then you've got a sign at the top at around sort of 89%. Um, but I'd be interested, looking in here, if anyone's got anything north of 
What have you got? You don't track it. Yeah. There we go. We know what good looks like here. So, I would define gross margin of, is cost of goods sold. And I'll give you an example just after this about how, how we kind of tally it up. Um, and then additionally here on this next graph from the same index, we're seeing ARR multiples versus gross margin. And all those blue, top, blue dots are the top percentile ones and some classic brands in that space as well. In any case... Ultimately, gross margin is just one of a basket of metrics that is going to get you to the higher multiple, but it's definitely a core cool part. So, was there at the beginning, the, obviously you work on gross margin, right? The question is, in a SaaS company, typically there's a lot of fixed costs, and you have very high margins once you get to a point. Mm. But there must be other certain, you guys obviously did a great analysis, but there are certain costs that tend to be a big part of the revenue. I think I think you're right. I think the gross margin one, even if you're massively burning cash, you can probably still have quite a good gross margin because you're really only attributing the cost of goods sold or from a product perspective, even just like the maintenance cost of doing that, which is typically quite marginal. I think where most companies are then overspending is on the customer acquisition side of things. Until they can get that, you know, you think about the customer acquisition payback period, I think for a lot of companies it's sort of north of 12 months. No, not yet. Um, but that would be useful. Because that see. would seem like, you know, that would be the real relevant because there's no tangible thing Yeah, agreed. But quick snapshot of those players there. Next is then looking at determining the gross margins. So there's kind of two different ways that we look about doing it. There's obviously the, the classic way, which is top-down, starting with your P&L, pulling out cost of goods sold. Um, and then we think, when I think of the team cost for us with our data protection officers, we might say, well, 75% of their time is billable, is customer-facing. 15% is just kind of internal stuff. Um, but useful from this perspective, but the, the more investigative way that we've done as well is going bottom-up. So when we come back to those swim lane sort of uh, experience map that we've got already, we can actually go in there and start attributing cost to each stage of these as well. So we can get real granular around what are the expensive parts to it? And particularly, again, some of those customer value moments. What's the cost of delivering that uh, kickoff meeting or whatever it might be along the adoption curve as well? So that's been really useful for us. And it's also a really good sort of collaborative team exercise to get people bought into finding that 1% sort of incremental improvements as well. And it's something that we try and do once a quarter, if only for one segment of the customer experience map. So, once we've identified the bottlenecks, and I'm going to talk through a couple of examples, we can then set about solving for them. So, the first example comes to mind is inefficient resource management. So, in Q4 last year, this is what our delivery team looked like. Um, and there's three different roles here. Um, and some of the constraints of this was, 
too many contacts talking with the customer. That was confusing. Um, we did a time spent analysis using Clockify, which is a free tool. That was quite useful. And we could see that the, our customer's test manager role was just heavily underutilized. We weren't really going to get true capacity in our role for a while. Um, so we could start exploring, could some of that role be done by other people in the team, and how would that look as we scaled? Um, and there was no alignment within these different roles of like who actually owned upsell and to some extent was attributable for, for net revenue retention. So that was kind of our starting point that we knew wasn't working for us. So we did a team restructure, and we've now got this kind of pod format here with the senior privacy manager, two DPOs, and two privacy associates. And by streamlining that, we've got rid of the customer success manager role. The DPO is now playing a little bit more of an account manager role, which actually double up, doubles up better because... Each DPO is looking after less customers than one customer success manager looking after all the customers. So it means we started getting a bit more ownership of um, upsell within that as well, as well as just better customer knowledge within the team. Um, so it, it streamlined the delivery of things. There's less roles for customers to interact with. And ultimately... No, so this is more because we give customers access to an expert backed up by software. They'll have a named person who's their like, expert, yeah. and then we have supporting roles like the privacy associate. Who's so like the account yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's that example. The other example was uh, solving for some of our customer adoption challenges. So we had... We had an adoption challenge where quite a lot of the adoption, the onboarding steps was put on the customer to do, and there was like a long kind of to-do list that we'd leave them with. And we found that because they weren't ring-fencing the time to do it, we were spending a lot of time chasing them to try and move them to the next step. So one of the things we did was actually start booking in a monthly kind of check-in call with the customer, which is a combination of running through any legacy onboarding actions as well as any other ongoing activities. And by having that protected time, the customer you know, did their stuff. We always had that check-in point. And really, as a result of that, they were making better progress. It was a more efficient use of our team's time because we weren't having to chase. It was just a block time that we knew was coming. Um, and as a result, it not only improved our NPS, which is a big jump in March this year, but also the gross margin gain and just efficiency of, like, right, that's now how we run that process. Make it nice and well-oiled, and, and off we go. So that was really helpful. Um, some other examples we did that were kind of bottlenecks for us were one was our kind of customer health reporting. So we run like a red, amber, green sort of weekly report. And until recently, it was, it was a spreadsheet. There was a multiple number, a couple of different levers that were just quite manual to, to oversee and time consuming. And we've now automated that in HubSpot. And that has sped up that process as well as keeping us more accountable with um, truer numbers. Another example of a bottleneck for us was the customer onboarding side of things. We used to give them a legacy kind of knowledge base where they could go and find all the steps themselves, and we found that it was just a bit confusing, quite overwhelming for them. So we actually migrated and put it in a shared Asana project that we'd give them access to so they could put in their own timelines. It was probably a tool they're using already internally as well, and that just enabled us to delegate a lot more of the overhead of managing that, which had an impact on our onboarding efficiency. Um, another example would be the sales to customer handover. Our account execs used to go and sit down with that debt officer 
talk them through the deal and then hand them over. Then we evolved that. We've actually restructured our HubSpot and like the way we make notes so that actually they get access to the deal on the handover and it's all structured in a way that's super straightforward to understand. We don't need to have that meeting. So that's been another efficiency gain. And what you'll see with all these examples is just, they're just iterative things. It's like, okay, we found a half an hour improvement there or that's a thing we now don't need to do at all. And these things start adding up quite quickly. And I think a big part for us has just been that culture internally of finding the 1%, finding the 1% um, that's worked well for us. So the next thing is looking at, well, that was how we looked at gross margin. Next, how we're thinking about it as we, as we scale going forward from our kind of mill of ARR onwards to, to 5 and 10 down the line. This is how we track gross margin. These are live numbers. So we're putting goals on it on an annual basis, and we're tracking on a monthly. So you can see our actuals were above where we wanted to be, um, and we're on track to that golden 80%. Um, and this metric is owned by our director of customer experience. He sits down with our finance manager twice a month, and we're just keeping a real pulse on that metric. For us, it's a real north star for us, um, and that's what we've been solving for. The next thing that we've been thinking about as well is understanding what our levers are for increasing uh, gross margin. There's ultimately kind of two things to that. One is bringing the cost of goods sold down, and the second is um, increasing revenue. Ultimately, the cost of goods is a lot more controllable um, than the revenue, particularly in the short term. So some examples for us on customer uh, cost of goods sold would be the frequency with which we're reviewing our customer experience map to find those 1%. It's that internal culture of always trying to get the team to find that 1%. Um, but as well, how we're solving for this next evolution of kind of product development. Because there's a lot of things we're doing internally that we know at some point we can automate or productize. So for us, we're always keeping that back in mind of what would need to be true for us to achieve that. Next up is just increasing revenue. Um, I think there's, there's a more controllable element of this in the first case, which is improving average customer value, particularly if you think about your existing cohort of customers, the efficiency of upsell and expansion. I talk to a lot of founders, and I often find that they're more interested or more focused on new revenue as opposed to growing existing revenue. And I think we all know the power of you know, good net revenue retention, that compounded over time um, is something that we've been solving for probably as a mutual priority, um, just because we've already got access to those customers and that opportunity. So the final thing then is how we align the team with our gross margin. We keep this as an annual goal. It's something that's shared frequently in the business, um, and it's something that we report on a leadership on a weekly level, monthly at our all hands. Um, it's always present in our objectives and key results and as part of our annual game planning process as well. So that is a quick recap of how we're scaling our gross margin. And ultimately, this is what I've walked through over the last 20 minutes or so in terms of the mapping process, and you've got the artifact if you want to do that workshop yourself, how we've solved for it in a couple of examples, and how we're prioritizing it going forward. Um, but if you've got any questions, just let me know. You had your CX workshop screen up there for like 10 seconds. Um, it should be, it'd be a, Nathan will probably distribute it. It'll be like one of the perfect things. I'll get it out of there. Thanks. Yeah. No worries.